0: With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. This isn't
0: your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today
2: on the James Altucher Show. There's a lot of things happening, as you say, it's sort of a, here's what's gonna happen next, and you gotta figure this out for yourself, irrespective of what you're doing. How do you position yourself for this future? What's a right way to think about it, but starts with having a
0: framework. You know, it's not just entrepreneurs that need to change their playbook. Everybody needs to change their playbook because company is about to go through massive transformations in the next 10 years. And so you're sitting there and you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, how can I get involved? How can I either start a company or how can I improve my life? What can I do listening to this? And what should I start looking at? So I've got Steve Case right here in the studio. Steve Case, the co-founder of AOL. Steve, how's it going? It's going great. It's been a a fun week. Now, I just finished your new book, The Third Wave. It's excellent. I really like, and we were just discussing this, I really like how you interwove kind of the past, the whole history of AOL, and really kind of the, the the rise of the consumer internet, but you you interwove that with what's coming next, which is what I'm really interested in. And uh, it was great to see both sides of that, particularly given your your history. But I'm just curious, here we are in Manhattan, you're a block away from Time Warner, the company that you were the chairman of at one point do you feel any um nostalgia passing the building like oh man i wish i was still chairman of the company no not really it was
2: a, it was a, it's similar with aol when i visit them either in Dallas or or here in new york uh there's it's always gonna be part of my life i started you know aol 31 years ago when uh, i was kind of a kid in my 20s and uh you know so it was a great you know, journey but when we did the merger now 15 16 years ago i stepped aside as ceo I was chairman for a couple of years and stepped aside. It was just it seemed like the right thing to do. And I've had a great time over the last 10 or 15 years kind of uh, kind of working both on the investment side, an investment firm we have called Revolution, and well well, on the philanthropic side with the Case Foundation. So, no, I don't really go back and say, what have coulda, shoulda, or or, or or miss it. That was a great adventure. Uh, and uh, the team we had did a great job of kind of trying to take the idea of the internet and make it part of everyday life. But uh, I'm, I'm now happy to be... You know, focused on what's next, which is obviously part of the reason I wrote this book.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to um, I want to dive into the book and, and into revolution because it's they're they're related because you're really investing a lot in the principles you describe in this book, ranging from the Internet of Everything to impact investing and so on. I want to um, first talk a little bit about the the past, just because y- you're I don't even know I mean I'm sure you realize, but you're really a historical mm-hmm. person. I mean, at one point, half of the internet was going through. AOL like right. and as you even mentioned in the book AOL was Facebook Twitter you know Google all rolled up into one as AOL at the time right. like everybody was using it for everything i mean i was on AOL IM for instance all day long every day so mm-hmm. so there is a, a history to be sure. addressed here and you 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 were i think it kind of establishes your credentials as a visionary going forward how um much of a visionary you were back in like 1987, 88, 89, and so on, before the consumer internet was was really here. And I'll j i will just I'll mention one thing. I remember I was a gra- graduate student at the time and uh, using Usenet, which was the you know message sure. boards before the World Wide Web. And I remember what a horrible thing it was when suddenly you released all of AOL's users onto Usenet. Yeah, I it remember really that. felt like Oh, my God, we're, we've been invaded. I mean, it even felt like we're, we're, we're all plotting to start an Internet, too, to just have our own place again. But, you know... No, I
2: remember that. And actually, Walter Isaacson is a friend, I know a friend of yours, too, and wrote the forward for the book, talks about that in the forward. sort of when kind of AOL opened the doors to its customers to connect to the Internet. But our view then, and, and it's still my view now, is we wanted to democratize access. We wanted everybody to be included. We wanted to level the the playing field. And so we recognize there are some you know, internet netizens, as they oh, often yeah, were, we were called, all who were like, oh, about about like oh, we just keep <laughs> our little neighborhood to ourselves, thank you very much. We don't want the, you know, the, the average folks coming in here, the riffraff. But we thought it was important that the internet be available to everybody, which is why we worked so hard to make it easy to use and useful and fun and affordable so everybody could use it, everybody could connect. Uh, and it took us a while, as I say in the book, when we got started in 1985, only 3% of people were online, and they were only online one hour a week, so, when we said we wanted to get america online we were, we were serious, and it was a, it was a hard struggle for for you know a decade really before, before we finally uh, broke through uh, and uh, you know, telling some of those you know stories as part of this book, yeah you know, it was kind of fun to you know go back thirty plus years and remember where we were and to see how far we've come, but also
0: to try to project where we might be going next well, well, and you were a classic David and Goliath story because there was there was CompuServe and prodigy and and you may or may not have seen kind of the the billion internet providers that were just coming 5 years later. Right. Uh but and you were the small guy out of CompuServe Prodigy and, and AOL. I mean they were backed by huge, you know, companies like IBM, Sears, H&R Block. Right. Uh They're so scary. how did you what what were kind of the um A reasons you thought hey, we could overcome these guys and get bigger and B what were you think were the critical decisions that allowed you to become bigger than them? Well, the first when we was first started looking
2: at this in the in the early '80s, it was kind of dominated by the the big guys. Now, dominated is kind of a weird word because not many more people were online. But there were big companies, as you mentioned, Prodigy, IBM, and Sears, who committed a billion dollars to to launch that, which is pretty. Uh, you know, pretty scary. And, and you had no and, big company behind you. No. And, uh, you know, at the time, copy as you mentioned, was owned by h Block. I'm called The Source. was owned by Reader's Digest. Knight Reader had a service called Butron, AT&T, and Citibank. Everybody was doing different uh, different tests. So this little company in, in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, uh, originally, originally called Quantum Computer Services, then called, uh, you know, obviously, AOL, uh, was kind of the, you know, the... The David going up against the Goliath, And it's funny to think back now, given what's happened with startups and funding of startups, but our first round of venture capital, we raised $1 million. And over seven years, we raised $10 million. When we went public in 1992, it was the first internet company to go public, we raised $10 million in the IPO.
0: And public at a $70 million valuation, and only, what was it, like nine years later, eight years later, $163 billion valuation. Right. No it, was, it was, it was, it was, no, it was No other company in history has ever. Well, had it was the best performing stock of the decade, and so
2: it was. But it was funny because when we went public, it wasn't just that we didn't raise much money and the valuation was low. I remember the roadshow. We we're talking to institutional investors, and they looked at us like we're crazy. Like, what are you talking about? You know, this this internet thing. Why would why would normal people ever want to get connected to this thing? Uh, so, of course, we take it for granted now, but in those early you know, days, of the, what I think of as sort of the first wave of the internet, it was tough. You know, most people were skeptical, and, and mo- it was kind of expensive to get online at the time, like often $10 an hour. It was kind of hard to get online. The software was really complicated. Most people didn't have PCs. The few who did didn't have modems. I remember back then, you had to go to the peripheral section of the computer store to get this right. thing called a modem. Uh, it wasn't much, once you got online, there wasn't much content there. There wasn't much community because nobody online to talk to. It, 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 it took took a while for that really to you know to take off and thankfully the team we had at AOL really stuck with it and and persevered and finally after a decade it we kind of became this kind of almost decade the making
0: overnight sensation. Well it really is kind of like that that whole notion of oh of course AOL made it they were in the right place at the right time but it really was I mean you see it in the book all the issues and problems you had along the way that you had to solve right? everything ranging from outages to marketing issues to all these to Bill Gates Doing his classic, summoning you to his office, right. saying, we're, "You know, either join us or we're going to crush you." Right. So, how does it feel a now? Intimidating, yeah. yeah. Like, so, so you were like up against Bill Gates back then, and now you guys, I'm going to call you elder statesmen, for lack of a better word. But now you're doing these charitable ventures together. Like, what do you guys talk about now? Now we have you call a very, each other on the phone, like, "Hey, no, Bill. we have a
2: very good relationship, but we did, we did duke it out. There's no question that uh, that uh, it was a tough, you know, particularly in that." 90s time frame, the Microsoft very powerful company, a Windows was very powerful franchise, uh, and when they said they were going to integrate their own online service—that's what we called it back then, not the internet they were going to integrate something called the Microsoft Network with every copy of of Windows it would be on every you know PC in the in in the in the world. Uh, it was kind of scary, and so uh, you know we were nervous. Some of our investors, frankly, and board members thought we we should you know kind of fold our tent and 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 sell to Microsoft call it a day because they're pretty scared of what was coming
0: but well, thankfully wh- why we, didn't you do that like I feel like if someone offered me I don't know what it would have meant to you like 10 20 million dollars and I was a young guy like of course I would have or even if I was an old guy I, I would take it. Like, why did you well, feel this, like, uh, this oh, was, I'm going to go for the billion?
2: Well, this was uh well. The answer, simple answer is, we really believed in the idea of the internet and believed in, in, in AOL and believed that it could change the world and believed we could build a significant, you know, valuable company. And so, uh, we 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 just it felt like there was still we'd been working hard for the better part of a decade. When we I was talking to Bill, I think it was probably '93 or '94, uh, and so we'd been at it, you know, since almost a decade. Uh, and uh, we'd gone public in 92 so it was a public company it was worth a few hundred million dollars at the time he never got to the point where he offered a, a price but it would have been something under a billion dollars and, and so there were some investors that made sense I didn't and, and and thankfully you know I won that by one vote <laughs> it was, you know there was it was a close close call and as you mentioned uh, six seven years later uh, it had gone from a few hundred million d- dollars to you know, you know tens and uh, tens of billions to then you know over 100, 150 160 billion. Um uh, and so you know, I think then the investors were the board members were all glad that
0: we hadn't sold. And and so again, what do you think? Um what do you think that we're? and this is of benefit to any entrepreneur listening? You know, MSN, of course, was the Microsoft network and had, had the backing of the biggest company in the world, biggest software company in the world. It was on a desk, very computer. What do you think were the critical factors that ultimately catapulted AOL beyond that? And MSN was basically a failure. Well, it was, it was a classic case of
2: of sort of, you call it David Goliath, but also sort of this battle between attackers and defenders. And, the, and what I learned particularly as the AOL got larger, and even uh, after the merger with Time Warner, is we kind of shifted from being an attacker, the disruptor to being more of the defender kind of protecting the the status quo. And, and the bigger companies tended to, you know, to focus on how do you extend their current businesses. So companies like Prodigy, you know, the, the Sears are a key partner thought of it mostly around shopping, electronic shopping. Uh, now we we call e-commerce so you know a a company like at&t thought about mostly about you know communications and Uh, And so everybody, you know, Citibank was thinking most about banking and Knight Ritter was thinking most about content. And so they all came at this new opportunity, kind of looking at the rearview mirror, kind of a little bit uh, imprisoned by their own, you know, past. We had at AOL, you know, the opportunity as a startup to really look at it, you know, with a clean slate and say. It it was almost like
0: the big companies were holding them back in some ways by their corporate culture being imposed on the smaller Startup. Right, they,
2: they were they were basically imposing a, a large company culture on a small you know kind of startup team that, that was part of it, but also were imposing a set of presumptions and hypotheses based on their own experiences that this new thing would look sort of like their old thing, and so you know that not surprisingly, if you're a newspaper company you know, like you know New York Times or or Knight Ritter or something like that, that or or, or Time Inc. You'd, you know, on the magazine side, you'd think of this as more like a electronic newspaper, and you would presume that the the key thing that would drive adoption would be content. Uh, Well, we didn't have that view. We had the view that, that the killer app was going to be people was going to be what we called community. Uh, now we think of it more as, as social media, uh, and so we kind of went all in on on community. We created things like like chat rooms, people connection. We created things like instant messaging and and buddy lists and things like that uh, because we really believed that that was really kind of the soul of the medium and and ultimately would be the you know the the core of the uh, of the of, of, of the medium. And it turned out right at at, at, uh, at our our peak, about almost half of all the internet traffic in the United States went through AOL, and more than half. Half of our use was these community you know, features. So mm-hmm. having that startup mentality and really saying, you know, how do we break through? What's going to really drive this? Uh, and you know, and and sort of have a view of that anything is possible and not be overly constrained by. By the you know kind of the perspectives of a larger company uh, was helpful. Part of the reason I, I wrote the book was to provide some of those lessons for entrepreneurs, but frankly, also some of those lessons for larger company executives. I think there are opportunities in this in this third wave uh, for big companies to disrupt themselves, but if they bring a cautious, conservative kind of uh, you know, view of it and and don't and, you know, get the right people and empower them in the right ways, they are going to be left
0: left behind. Well, that's really interesting because. As you saw through the '90s and even in the early '00s, like the idea of a large company imposing their culture on the startup culture is—it's almost like you can't get away from that. Like when you—and I want to talk about the third wave and how companies can use that, and, and individual entrepreneurs can use that. But when you even merged with Time Warner, I mean, technically your market cap was bigger, so it was AOL absorbing Time Warner. But ultimately, Time Warner did impose their culture on AOL. And and it was too much, like it was right. overwhelming. That that whole media-centric culture, the internet as a newspaper, and so on. And now, you know, you discussed the first wave as like Internet 1.0, the 90s. Maybe the second wave was the social media going, and the app store and right. mobile, and so on. Now. I think there's a lot of questions of what about what's coming next and you discuss it as as the internet of everything, which which overrides what people call the Internet of Things. Maybe discuss what is the Internet of Everything? How did we kind of get to this point?
2: We got to this point. The way I, I think of it is the first way really was about building the internet. Uh, and building awareness of the internet, and it was hard, as I as I said, it was really a decade to you know get traction. It required building the networks, and building the software, and building the services, and you know, a lot of stuff, and a lot of different partnerships to kind of create it. You know, that is a consumer kind of phenomenon, uh, and not just have the on ramps, but educate people why they should get on. You know, which again seems kind of crazy now to talk about it, but for the better part of a decade, it wasn't just about building it; it was about evangelizing why people should be connected. So that really was the whole first wave just building the internet the second wave has been building on top of the internet and it has as you mentioned been about apps and services and facebook and twitter and and snapchat and waze are kind of you know classic examples of that in the in the second wave it's really been about the software it's really been about the app it's really been about you know viral trying to drive viral adoption And there will continue to be opportunities like that. But in the third wave, it's it's gonna really be the next step, which is integrating the internet in seamless, pervasive, ubiquitous ways across our lives. And in the process, I think really revolutionizing things like how we learn and and how we stay healthy and how we move around and how we manage energy and even how we eat. And so big sectors of, of our lives, big sectors of the economy are up for grabs. And, and the question is how much of that comes from, you know, the, the innovation comes from the entrepreneurs, the upstarts, the attackers, and how much comes from the larger companies, the incumbents, the the defenders, and I think time will tell. But I do think it's a it's going to require a different mindset for both an entrepreneurs and and corporate executives. And that's why I kind of lay out a framework in in this book. And and some of it builds on some of the lessons I I learned as both an entrepreneur in the first wave and an investor in the second wave.
0: But historically, and and as you saw, it seems like. Again, the large companies—they almost become bureaucracies unto themselves. Like they get so uh, indoctrinated in their culture, for better or for worse, because focus was important for them at some point while they were building. And you know, it's always startups. Like you have a, a great uh, graphic in the book where job creation really comes from the startups right. as opposed to the older companies. They're trying to now do find efficiencies and do layoffs and so on. Whereas the startups are all, by definition, are hiring people because they're starting up and hiring people. Right. So how do you? Um, you know how can uh, a, a corporate CEO or, or let's say even middle management executive uh, start to say, hey, we should try um, I don't know putting internet chips on the food to keep track of you know the quality of the meat and so on. Mm-hmm. Like who's going to want to sort of take that chance and and spend that money and do that? Well, I think the smart, uh, large companies will recognize that they don't
2: lean into the future. They don't take some chances. They're going to lose their way. I remember one of the most iconic companies when I was growing up was Eastman Kodak. Everybody knew Kodak because it was so dominant in photography. Well, they're now bankrupt. And the reason they're bankrupt is they lost their way in the digital photography revolution. But the odd thing, the surprising thing, in some ways the shocking thing, is they actually invented digital photography, Kodak. Uh, but then the corporate executives were more focused on playing defense, selling chemicals and papers, and which were pretty lucrative at the time. So, they didn't really invest in digital photography, didn't want it to happen quickly. And, you know, they got left behind with a whole I mean, a slew of new companies that emerged that not only led the way, but led the way to the point where Kodak went out of business. Well, and so that is, I think, a, a good lesson for uh, for these larger companies. How do you think about the, you know, the future? How do you kind of lean into the future? How do you attract people within your company and create the right culture, environment around innovation, collaboration within your company? But in particular, how do you build a network around your company? It's not so much the people within your company, it's the other people around your company, including entrepreneurs. So how do you partner with entrepreneurs instead of fearing them, embrace them, and figure out ways to leverage some of their insights, some of their technology, some of their, their products and services. And I think in the third wave, there'll be more of that opportunity. I think the bigger companies will be more in tune about the benefits of partnering with entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurs will start seeing the benefits of partnering with these larger companies. Cause it's not like the second wave, about the software, it's about the app, you know, Facebook didn't really need partners and Snapchat didn't really need partners. They just needed to launch a cool app and, and hope it struck a, a chord with lots of people. And obviously it did. But if you're really going to revolutionize healthcare, you kind of have to partner with hospitals and, and doctors. If you want to revolutionize learning, you kind of have to partner with, with schools. And so it's going to require more more partnerships in the third wave, which will kind of force the entrepreneurs to embrace the idea of partnership, but also force the large organizations, whether it be nonprofits or, or, or corporations, to figure out ways to embrace the entrepreneurs. And that dance is gonna be one of the important aspects of this third wave.
0: You know, it's interesting. You bring up the Kodak example, and you you bring up a quote that, uh, I guess it was the CEO, or no, one of the main guys, who, the guy who discovered the digital camera said, uh, oh, it'll be about 20 years before the digital right. photography is mainstream, which is, in retrospect now, was a short time because now they're bankrupt. But at the time, they probably were listening to that and figure, okay, we'll deal with this later. I think a lot of large companies don't see the exponential effect of these rising technologies, sort of the Moore's Law effect that these techni- like digital photography might have started off small, but if something's doubling every year, it's gonna get big suddenly so fast at the it's gonna reach this tipping point where it'll be so fat big so fast, we'll be too late. And the entrepreneurs who are right there at that point won't be too late. And I think that's what happened with AOL versus like an HR block, say.
2: I think that's right. And even with AOL, there were companies that we were talking to and partnering with. Uh, that were intrigued with what was happening, uh, but uh, thought the market was still kind of small, kind of nichey, kind of hobbyisty, and AOL uh, well, at the time was still you know pretty small. They, they said, well, "Let's keep an eye on this thing, and if it ever really gets real momentum, we'll go buy it." You know, we, we, it sort of just seems like it's still kind of early stage. We we should you know, we should monitor it, but we shouldn't you know be overly kind of you know focused on it. And of course, once we did hit our stride, the growth accelerated so quickly, and the valuation accelerated so quickly that was no longer. An option, and so I think that is a, I think a lesson you know I learned for you know in terms of big companies, how do you make sure you're really are thinking about the future and don't presume it's going to be you know you know twenty years down the road. It may, it may, some of these things will take some time to. Kind of bake in the oven, but once there is clear evidence and momentum that a, a new company, a startup, has a better idea, uh, the, the support they'll get from investors and, and employees and partners really can accelerate that. An example I, I mentioned in the book is, you know, Airbnb is now a huge hospitality company with a with a market cap of it's private but roughly twenty five billion dollars. They didn't exist a decade ago. You know, Hilton and Marriott have both been around a half a century. Uh, and and they're now worth less than Airbnb, and I have no doubt that the executives at Hilton and and Marriott, when Airbnb came first came on the scene, and said, well, "What's this? This is silly. Yeah, you know, who's really gonna rent out like an air mattress in their in their apartment or rent out a room in their apartment? This is like a ridiculous idea." Uh, and of course, Airbnb struck a chord and expanded into other things. So, you know, you can rent your whole apartment or or in some you know vacation homes. Uh, and suddenly that went from a dumb idea that was never never had a shot to being a you know, idea that really has significant you know momentum. And now, for example, Airbnb has far more hotel rooms or virtual hotel rooms. people places people can stay in Cuba, for example, than all the hotel companies combined. you know, Company and, didn't it didn't exist a decade ago. So it's, these things can happen faster than the larger you know kind of incumbent players you know think and they have to be monitoring what's happening and the best
0: way to do that is to, to partner with entrepreneurs in some kind of win-win way and yet and yet like the airbnb is a great example uh that's just in the past few years so it's not like things have changed they're still it's like the same old that you experienced in the 90s that people experienced in the '00s, you know of 1900 so so, okay, so talk about the Internet of Everything. Like, what are what are some of the most, what is it, what are some of the most amazing things you've seen with it? You have a lot of examples in the book, but I'd like to hear you talk about it. Well, I think there are a bunch
2: of different sectors, but the, you know, the core idea is that it's going to, the Internet and technology is going to become really uh, pervasive and ubiquitous. And so it's not going to just be in a, in a few places, like we saw in the first wave and the second wave, sectors like communications and media are being being uh, disrupted. It's going to really impact really every aspect of our our lives. So it starts with that theme. And then, so how does technology, how does the internet improve the way we deliver health so that we have uh, kind of better health outcomes with more convenience at lower cost if you go to a doctor's office now it's, you know, it's about the same as what 20 years ago you, you would you would not know that there has been an internet revolution if you if you walk into your you know, your doctor there's some examples in some places where that's not the case but the vast majority of people nothing is nothing has uh, changed
0: similarly you, you're, the, you're right though like like paperwork is all over the place they have the same manila folders with my patient records. Why it seems like there have been a lot of companies that tried to kind of mm-hmm. uh, consolidate all that into software and networking. Why has that not occurred yet? Like, why can't they? Because part- doctors' offices maybe are so uh, segmented. Maybe that's why there's too many partnerships to happen. Well, I think that's part of the my you know whole theme of the third
2: wave. But a, it's it's hard and it's going to take time. So perseverance is is important. You know, B, you can't go alone. You need to. You need to partner, and for the startups to partner with these larger organizations to kind of get their foot in the door with uh, United Health or or Cleveland Clinic or uh, Mayo or others it's hard because you know it's hard to figure out a way to get in. It's hard to figure out a way to stra- establish that partnership. There are a lot of interesting technologies, interesting products, services that just don't get traction because they're not able to get those kind of partnerships. And, the, and, and, and the partnerships third,
0: is a key part of huge. how an entrepreneur can succeed now. In this third wave as opposed to second wave and first wave
2: well i'd say the first wave partnerships were important you know and part of part of what my reason i wrote the book is some of the i realized some of the things that were important in the first wave weren't important particularly important in the in the second wave but will be important again in the third wave so partnerships were critical for us we wouldn't have not gotten off the ground without uh Partnerships, perseverance was important. It took us, as I mentioned, a, a, a decade. And policy was important. Engaging with with government because the government helped to create the and fund the internet and, and figure out when and how to commercialize the internet and figure out how to break up the phone companies, to unleash competition and telecommunications that enabled, you know, the internet. You know, their government played an important role in getting that that going. Not so much in the in the in the second wave when it was more about apps. But it's going to become important again in the in the third wave. And it ties back to your health care question, even some of the things that were in the Affordable Care Act that was passed by by the Congress is unleashing some of the innovation in, in, in technology, requiring uh, electronic medical records to be adopted and, and pr- providing some funding for doctor's offices to to do that. So, I, I think that's the lesson to me is that, that, you know, entrepreneurship in this third wave is going to require a different mindset and a different playbook. And things like perseverance are going to matter more. Things like partnerships are going to matter more. Things like perseverance are going to matter more. And it wasn't that important, those three Ps and the, Second wave, it was in the first wave, which is why, you know, some of the stories I tell about the early days with AOL, the early days of the first wave is I do that because I think it helps inform entrepreneurs, innovators thinking about the third wave because they're, you know, Shakespeare once wrote us the past is prologue, and I think that's true as we think about the third wave.
0: And so, so again, what do you see as some of the, um, I mean, you mentioned healthcare, what are some companies you've seen now that have just like blown your mind in terms of how they're using this next phase of the internet? And again, just to be clear, this next phase of the internet is not just about connecting people, it's about connecting everything. It's like, for instance, I'll just give a basic example, uh, a traffic light seeing that you're speeding and then sending that signal to the police headquarters. Then you get mailed the ticket and so on. This is this is all now going through the internet. It's not like these disparate uh, pieces of software. They're all. It's all happening on one platform. And, and again, not just about connecting humans, but connecting things. Right, exactly. And the whole Internet of Things is really about
2: devices and sensors, both in terms of things consumers might have with them, as well as things that are in enterprises and even things that are built into infrastructure and cities, the whole idea of smart cities that a lot of companies are What does a smart city mean? On. Smart city basically means you can figure out ways to know where people are and where people are going in a way that allows you to be smarter in terms of managing you know, things like uh you know lights when people are driving their 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 car or having a better planning in terms of how many you know, people you need to be ready for on that, you know, subway, or, you know, if you do have a, a challenge, some kind of crisis, and need to move people around, what are smarter ways to, to move people around? And these things are, are, you know, are tricky and actually sometimes a little scary. There can be a little bit it's of a big brother issue. aspect to it and uh, and a privacy aspect to it, and I think that's why more dialogue is gonna be important in this in this third wave between the innovators and sort of the, the policy makers. But going back to some specifics of the third wave, in healthcare, there's really three parts of healthcare. I mean, you know, what do we do to stay healthy Healthy. You know, how do we manage chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes, and how do we deal with, with life-threatening disease? And there are dozens of startups in each of those three areas that are doing interesting things on this. How do we stay healthy? Uh, there's some some wearable devices. Fitbit obviously become popular now, a successful you know, public uh, company, but there are dozens of people doing things like that, dozens of, of, of new ideas that are out there in terms of the wellness side of things. How do you keep people healthy? Dozens of companies that are doing things around chronic managing chronic disease—the way most people manage things like diabetes—hasn't really changed in, in, in decades. And there are a lot of innovative things that are happening, uh, and a lot of accelerators and incubators just focused on on, on that, including you know Rock Health. Uh, it's been one of the ones that's been you know, quite successful. And similarly, on the on the on the third piece, how do you be more targeted about things? Right now, if you go to one of the most successful and largest kind of cancer you know, centers in the in the in the country, MD Anderson, they say. of all diagnoses are, are wrong. You know, they, they don't get it right the first time. Not MD Anderson, but when people come to MD Anderson for a second opinion, tw- you know, 25% of the time they reverse the opinion that was originally given. That's amazing first, of course, his
0: basic advice is always get a second opinion. I didn't really that's know why the you need to get a bit. second
2: opinion. And, and some of that is because, particularly if you're in hospital in some, you know, rural area, they don't have a particular sophistication about brain cancer or something else. Uh, they're they're going to take a shot at it. They're going to obviously do the best they can, but they don't have the tools. They don't have the expertise. Uh, and so going to, you know, Centers of Excellence, where they do have that it, it it changes and then you can you know do some things with with you know dna now that allow you to be more precise in terms of what drugs work and don't work most drugs pe- most people take actually don't work for them they work for some people but they don't work for everybody uh and we kind of have this kind of one size fits all kind of approach so there's just gonna be enormous innovation in 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 healthcare i also think there's gonna be enormous innovation in education there are obviously a lot of things have happened in the first wave and the second wave around different learning and a lot of apps, and it had, had, had all had a role in, in, in some of that. But the reality is for most kids in most classrooms and most parts of the country, despite the fact they have computers in the classroom and, 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 in many places, the process of learning is about the same as it was. Uh, yet most kids learn differently, they don't all learn the same. Uh, and teachers, if they have a better sense of how different kids are are doing in terms of different, you know, kind of lessons and, and can customize things in a more personalized, adaptive way using uh, technology... I think that'd be helpful. Similarly, in the universities, or a lot of universities are now, you know, testing the idea of flipped classrooms, that maybe instead of having the professor stand at the front and give the same lecture they've been giving for decades, uh, they actually tape that and you watch the video in your dorm the night before. When you come to class, you actually have a discussion with the professor and your, and your you know, fellow students. And so, how do you have a much more interactive discussion around, around the you know, the topics? And how do you use technology to enable that more kind of adaptive, personalized approach to, to learning? So, there's just, there's, there are innovative things that have been Happening around the edges, but most of these sectors of, of the economy, and frankly, most of these important aspects of our lives, haven't changed that much in the in the first wave or the second wave. But I think they are going to change in in this third wave, and the entrepreneurs are going to lead the way as they always do, kind of challenging the status quo and and kind of you know pushing pushing ahead. But there's also a role, particularly in these sectors, uh, for partnerships with some of the big companies already there and and dialogue with governments who are going to be involved as as, as, as regulators, and in some cases customers in some of these sectors. I know some entrepreneurs don't want to hear that because it's kind of scary to think about partnerships. It's, hard to, it's, about it's, partnerships. it's, it's hard to think about partnerships. It's scary to go- think about government. It's, it's very hard down. to talk
0: to the government. Like, you it can't, is very hard. You can't call them up and say, hey, I'd like to meet – the czar of the internet of everything like there is none. (laughs) Correct,
2: and and, and so it's be frustrating. And again, this is part of the motivation to to write the book. It sort of lays out a framework for what I think will play out in the next 10, 15, 20 years, uh, and some thoughts on why that will happen the way it will, but also some ideas on how entrepreneurs need to change their playbook, how corporate executives need to change their playbook, and how government regulators need to change their playbook. Everybody needs to dance a little different dance in in this third wave. Let's stop to take a quick
0: break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that, And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb. But there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise, dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit huntingtonfranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait, visit huntingtonfranchise.com today. But you know, it's not just entrepreneurs that need to change their playbook. It's basically everybody needs to change their playbook. Because if you're sitting in a cubicle listening to this, for instance, your company is about to go through massive transformations in the next 10 years. And so you're sitting there and you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, how can I get involved? How can I either start a company or how can I improve my life? What can I do listening to this? And what should I start looking at? What are kind of areas where maybe uh, entrepreneurs to be should start looking at? What's well, a great point? I think everybody kind of has to bring a kind of an entrepreneurial
2: "what's going to happen next" mindset, and everybody needs to really try to do the best they can to manage their own career. You know, when I was, you know, kind of coming out of college, you know, the, the history was like my dad had one job, worked for one company for sixty years. You know, I worked for several companies.
0: You worked for Procter and Gamble and Pizza Hut. <laughs> I
2: worked for Procter and Gamble and Pizza, then Control Video, a startup that then kind of morphed into 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 AOL. So I had three jobs in three years. My parents thought I would completely kind of, you know, go nowhere fast. Well, now there's some people who have three jobs with three different companies in the same day. You know, the whole gig economy. They might (laughs) work for Uber, then Lyft, and then, you know, Instacart or or, or what have you. So the notion of work has changed. Now 34% of Americans are freelancers. Uh, either freelancing on specific projects for companies and and maybe they have a half a dozen different you know different organizations they work with or some cases like the gig economy freelancing for you know a variety of folks in the same week or even the in the same day so the whole idea of work is is you know, even the even the, the government reports job statistics every every month but it's, it hasn't really changed in a half a century even though the nature of work has changed in a half a century so there's a lot of things happening as you say it's not just about it's part. You know, the book is not intended to be just a business book it's sort of a Here's what's gonna happen next? And you gotta figure this out for yourself, irrespective of what you're you're doing. How do you position yourself for this future? What, what what's the right way to think about it? But starts with having a framework. And I, I should say that even the title of the third wave, I didn't come up with. I I read a book when I was in college by Alvin Toffler called The Third Wave uh, in 1980. And I was mesmerized by it. He kind of laid out a framework for what's going to happen next. And I, I thought it made sense, and, and he talked at the time about the electronic cottage and other things. Again, the Internet, it didn't exist then. It was not available to consumers. It took a decade after that book was written before. It was legal to connect consumers or businesses to the Internet. Hmm. Uh, so, it was, it was very futuristic, you know, uh, but uh, I read that Toffler Third Wave, and I, I, I just knew it was going to happen. And that then gave me a framework uh, in terms of what was going to happen over the next 10 or 20 years, which led me to want to not just kind of take the traditional corporate path, but do something that was more entrepreneurial, which ultimately led me with uh, with two others to co-found AOL in, in, in 1985. I don't think that would have happened without reading The Third Wave. So, part of my goal with writing this book, and part of my reason to even name it, it, the you know the third way was to you know show some appreciation for how toffler inspired me uh and I was it you know, was kind enough to read the book and provide some some comments on it and what they call in the publishing world as you know a blurb for it so for me it was a little bit of kind of closing that, that 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 circle but I'm hopeful there's somebody out there maybe listening to this podcast who who can get the same inspiration from my third wave that I got from the toffler third wave now nearly 40 years ago
0: well it's interesting because AOL obviously was a was you know a great business like you said half the internet's traffic rose to a 150 billion dollar uh, valuation but then what happened was many smaller companies using that and the internet as a platform were created with you know with nice exits of five million 10 million 50 million hundred million and so on and, and I kind of see what you're suggesting here is that there's going to be the internet of everything the platform sort of created already in some sense just by the you know the fact that the networking is pervasive the internet is pervasive but now there's lots of smaller opportunities to create these niche companies in these different spaces healthcare food transportation and so on so and you you actually mentioned one company that I thought was fascinating because you don't need te- technological expertise to make money it's the um Company where teachers uh, pay for each other's curriculums. Right. So what, what was that? It was Teachers for Pay? What was that uh, company? It was basically a, a company that, that had the idea that every teacher
2: is is kind of making up their own curriculum, making up their own syllabus, making up their own, own coursework. Why don't you create a platform where everybody can post their stuff? Uh, and then the, you know, the people can share it, or in this case, they actually pay something so that the lesson plan you created or the course material you created could be available by by to, to other people. And so it was a, it's the idea of creating essentially a marketplace for content for, for teachers. And it's, we,
0: it's an amazing way for teachers to get involved in this gig economy because teachers don't make these huge salaries. But you mentioned four millionaires have come out of this platform so far. And you're
2: going to see a lot more of those kind of things. There's enormous education innovation happening. And a lot of it, frankly, is coming from teachers. I saw this. I do these rise of the rest bus tours around the country because i i believe as while there's great things happening in in silicon valley and new york and boston and sort of the the usual places there are also great things happening in cities all across the country and that dynamic around the rise of the rest will build steam i think in the in the in the third wave for a whole host of reasons but one of the cities that there's enormous innovation around education uh is new orleans and the reason is 10 years ago new orleans as everybody knows got devastated by katrina it really almost wiped the city out a lot of people left all the schools had to shut down uh, and in in some ways it turned out to in an odd way to be a blessing because something like 70 percent of the schools at the time were had failing grades uh but they had to restart them and and they ended up putting charter schools in place it got thousands of people coming to new orleans including from teach for america And many stayed and having that experience of of teaching now have a better sense of what teachers need and what students need. And there are dozens of ed tech startups now in in New Orleans. I talk about some examples in, in in the book. So, this is a great example of people who are close to the problem, or they understand the problem, in this case, with the environment with, with Classroom, who are figuring out ways to be be their own entrepreneurs, create startups to solve some of those, those problems. We're seeing that not just in New Orleans, but Detroit and Pittsburgh and Kansas City and Nashville and Minneapolis and, and Des Moines. There's really innovation happening all across the country. I think that's going to be one of the great phenomenons of this third wave.
0: Right, and it's not just Silicon Valley. In fact, even Um, Even Mark Cuban has said the best thing you can do now is uh, invest outside of Silicon Valley and then sell your company to Silicon Valley because that's where the valuations are higher, but you can invest more cheaply outside of Silicon Valley. Correct.
2: I think think there's great things happening in Silicon Valley. There are great things happening here in New York. Uh, But there's so much money chasing those companies, valuations do tend to be quite a bit higher. Yet when the companies are successful and either get, you know, acquired or go public, nobody says, oh, you're you're like Exact Target, for example, is a company based in Indianapolis, Indiana and and Salesforce bought them for $3 billion. They didn't say, oh, you know, Exact Target, you're only worth $2 $2 billion because you're in Indianapolis, they thought it's worth $3 billion. Or Under Armour, now a very successful kind of athletic wear company using technology, you know, worth $20, $25 billion and, and, and going after Nike, they're in Baltimore, Maryland. You know, they're not, they're not, where would you think they would be? You know, nobody would guess they're in, in Baltimore, but when, and when they got started, Kevin Plank would would say it was really hard to get started, really hard to raise the capital because people weren't funding startups in, in Baltimore. But now that they've been successful, there's a whole ecosystem, you know, building around Under Armour and other, other companies, and, and we're seeing this really all over the country. It's really something I'm very encouraged by because if people want to be in Silicon Valley, go for it. Uh, but if people want to be in Detroit because they want to be part of the rebirth of Detroit, maybe. They're from Detroit, uh, now they can be in Detroit. And there's a startup scene in Detroit that didn't exist you know, 10 years ago and capital focused on startups in Detroit that didn't exist you know, 10 years ago. And the connection between this rise of the rest and the third wave, I think, is going to be quite interesting because m- many of the big sectors of the economy aren't in California and New York. Most of the 75% of Fortune 500 companies are in the middle of the country. And so, if partnerships matter and you really want to revolutionize you know, farming, for example, you know, you wanna create an ag tech company, you know, you could do that in in San Francisco, you could do that in in here in Manhattan, but you also could do that in, in Louisville, which has a great kind of farming ecosystem or in St. Louis, companies like Monsanto are there. They have 100,000 PhDs who understand agriculture. I'll bet there are a bunch of startups that in the third wave of the next decade that that come out of Monsanto. There might be a hundred ag tech startups, you know, ten years from now in, in St. Louis. And, and they probably will be more successful because they have an understanding of that industry, and they potentially could be partners with you know, existing players in the industry like a Monsanto.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, you're a great example of someone who didn't have experience in the area you became successful. And I mean, you were at Procter and Gamble. You were uh, director of marketing at Pizza Hut, and then suddenly you became the biggest internet guy out there. And what? What should? Let's say I'm, again, I'm listening to this. I'm thinking, my gosh, this is going to be a trillion dollar opportunity. How can I get involved? What should I start? You know, obviously, they should read the third wave of your book to kind of see the outline of what's happening. What else? What do you read? Like, how do you kind of do your research in these areas? What should somebody read to kind of say, okay, now I'm I'm getting equipped with the resources to to go out there and do something?
2: I think it's a mix of things. First, I think entrepreneurs are great you know, pattern recognizers. They they they're p- paying attention to something and they're seeing some trends develop, and they start connecting the dots and they say, ah. I see there's something there. So, you have to be kind of looking at what's happening on the periphery. And it depends what your passion is, it depends what your area of focus is. You know, some people might say, I just want to be part of the, the revolution in food, the belief that big food companies are gonna come under pressure because they generally are offering unhealthy options to people. I want to focus on that. Well, pay attention to what's happening in that sector, follow the blogs, go to the conferences, You know, follow people on Twitter that are doing innovative things in those, in those places. And over time, you'll get a point of view about what's likely to happen and you'll make some connections with some people. Maybe some of those people could join you in in starting a company that can kind of take on that. And it could be true in any sector. So, part of it's figuring out what what part of this you're most passionate about, you're most interested in, and then diving into it. And there is an interesting dynamic, and you kind of allude to it, that sometimes the benefit of, of being an entrepreneur who doesn't have any experience in the industry is you can bring a fresh perspective. You don't have any kind of fixed ideas of what's gonna happen. And that is true. And that does enable a lot of different uh, innovation. But I think in the third wave, Ignorance is not going to be as successful as a strategy, or naivete is not going to be successful as a strategy. Because I do believe you know, that, that education, for example, there's a certain culture to it. If you don't understand what a teacher you know, is dealing with, you probably aren't going to be as successful in connecting with a teacher. Similarly with a with a doctor. Similarly with a with a chef. So there's some balance that's going to be required where you bring that naivete that energy that sense of possibility uh that uh, somebody who doesn't understand the the industry w- might have and and marry that with and balance that with some understanding of the people and the cultures and the and the perspectives and so building the right teams in the third wave i think it's going to be very important I've, I've learned entrepreneurship is a is a team sport It's one of the themes i really focus on in the in in the book and it's going to require diverse perspectives uh so you have some people who bring that Technology engineering perspective. Some people bring that consumer marketing perspective. Some people bring that industry specific, whether it be health or learning or food or what have you, you know, perspective. And make sure your team really has a you know the right mix of skills, the right mix
0: of of perspectives. And so, so what what uh, books would you recommend they read today? Like starting now. You know what to inspire them to get them going. So again, the third wave. I highly recommend. It's a great. Well, you. It's your story mixed with your the ideas of the future. What's next? I th- again, it, I think it really depends on your specific interests. There are a lot of great books
2: on 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 entrepreneurship and technology uh, 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 trends. But I would encourage people to focus on some area of passion and, and say, you know, what what is the thing that over the next ten or twenty years you really want to focus on? That you really have a sense that's going to change. You have a perspective on how it might change, and dig into the you know in a more specific way into some of those. That might be reading books, that might be reading blogs, that might be you know talking to people, that might be going to conference, whatever it takes to become more familiar with what's happening in 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 that sector, what some of the trends are, what some of the patterns that are starting to coalesce are, uh, and I, as I said. Earlier. I think I think if you're doing that, you will bump into people and ideas that will help give you, you know, clarity and give you some. And like some you said, guidance. give you a
0: point of view. I think yeah. that's the critical thing. You
2: have to have a point of view. And, and people, you know, don't necessarily know on day one what that is because they, they don't know enough to be smart about it. Uh so they, they they occasionally you might just have a point of view that that you just get lucky on, but more often it's informed by some you know interaction with other people and sometimes interaction with the the marketplace, what we now call pivots. You set, thought think this is gonna work and it doesn't quite work, you try this and eventually you have a point of view of what's gonna, you know, gonna actually help. That was true with AOL. We we it we it was like it really was a decade of trying this and trying that. The first the thing we tried failed miserably. I remember the the you know, I went to a board meeting, I was now twenty six years old, something like that. One of the venture capitalists actually Frank Caulfield who helped found Kleiner Perkins Caulfield buyers, one of the largest, you know most successful venture firms of the really the last half century. He was in that board room and said, Geez, you'd have thought they would have shoplifted more than that. You know, The sales were so bad. Uh, so that company you know, was, was struggling. But from that, we created something where we were partnering with PC manufacturers, Commodore and Apple and Tandy and IBM to essentially create private label, what some people call kind of you know white label, kind of online services. We did that for a few years. Uh, and then we had to pivot again, in part because Apple pulled out of the deal we had with them to create Apple Inc. And we had to figure out what to do next. And that led us to kind of rename Apple Inc. Personal Edition, America Online, and 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 then AOL and and then what we as we were talking about earlier, we said we we're going to really focus more on. Uh, not on, uh, on the con- on the community side not just content and and commerce and we really kind of doubled down on on that and then we're going to figure out a way to you know really attract lots of people which is when we came up with the idea of a free trial giving out lots of discs with a free month to get people you know lower the barrier to get them to try all those things were experiments over a decade some worked, some didn't work we, we just kept going we kept persevering and eventually we had a point of view that this was now about to take off and that's when we kind of slammed down the accelerator Ex, you know, kind of you know, expanded our investment in partnerships, expanded our investment in marketing, and and went from a couple hundred thousand you know, subscribers after seven or eight years to 25 million subscribers seven or eight years later. It was that, a point when,
0: of view. When that growth was happening, and obviously both the growth of the company and the growth of your wealth and success and so on were happening, how did your life change? Like how did you kind of um, uh, deal with all this this growth that was happening in your life? it was it was a
2: challenge but i always i think bring a kind of a even-keeled perspective to it you know people would would uh, of you know, sometimes joke about me as being kind of the shock absorber in the company. I try to kind of kind of even things out a little bit. Sometimes people were overly optimistic. Sometimes even get cocky about you know kind of our position, and I'd remind them of some of the uh, the you know competitive risks, and you know, i sort of be delegating paranoia in that sense. And there are some years where people were giving up on us, and you know, people were kind of down and, and deflated. And I'd remind people you know why this is a journey you know it's important, a battle worth worth fighting to try to bring them back up. So I tried to kind of you know both for the company and for myself kind of have a more even keeled approach that wasn't quite as you know big highs big lows but a little, little more you know steady as as you go but as it got bigger and it had uh, you know more success it was a mix of you know the challenge of running a company with thousands of people not dozens of people but also some you know real comfort and and, and, uh, and that felt great about the fact that we'd for a decade uh, had been believing this someday would happen. That someday we'd break through. Someday we'd people understand the benefits of of, of getting connected. Finally, was happening, and so this this dream we had that it, that it, it felt felt elusive for a decade. It just seemed like you know it was going to happen someday, but you know there was a light at the end of the tunnel. But boy, that light seemed flickering, and it seemed distant. Finally, you know, we had arrived. Finally, the internet was becoming something that had mainstream success. So, I think that the, the, the key lesson I try to communicate in this book is that perseverance matters. That it, there was many people that had, this, had similar ideas that we had and, and tried different things, but gave up. They just said, this is not working. We've we got to go do something else. Maybe go back to working for a, a safer kind of big company. But we, our team at AOL believed, and we, we stuck with it, and eventually we broke through.
0: And and then you made what is, in my view, clearly the smartest business transaction in history. I mean, you were understanding that the internet was not peaking as a technology, but was clearly at that time 1999 peaking as uh, this stock market phenomenon at that moment. And so you went out and essentially acquired the largest media company in the world. I mean, they had 10 billion in profits versus your 1 billion in profits. They dwarfed you in terms of revenues, but because of your market position, you were able to acquire them rather than vice versa. And you had looked at other internet companies, but felt that was not diversification enough. But then people sort of took the reverse view that it was the worst transaction in history because they were looking at it from the Time Warner point of view and the short-term thinking of the stock market then. How were you feeling then? Like Here you had been on top of the world a few years earlier, and then suddenly the the media was like, Blasting right. you and AOL, it must have been painful at some point. No, despite the success, it was painful. We had, we had, had a, you know, It was a, as I say, it was a tough decade to
2: get going. Finally, the second decade, we had real traction, real momentum. I mean, kind of had arrived, and then a few years later, you know, things were in decline again, and so it was it was frustrating. And I, I learned a lot from that. And I think people learn from their challenges, their, their their problems, their failures more than they do from their 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 wins and successes. So I was pretty candid in the book about kind of what happened and why I think it happened, what some of the the, the takeaways for me were, but it certainly it was painful. It was it was uh, you know, frustrating that we had we had worked so hard to get to this point, and then you know, kind of the air was coming out of the balloon, and and it was it was frustrating and disappointing. And what what do you think you you learned? Well, one is important: to people and culture. That the idea of the merger with Time Warner, you mentioned sort of the financial diversification, which was true. I think we'd gone from a you know, $20 billion market cap to $160 billion market cap over two or three years. And there was, you know, at that point, we thought more downside risks than upside potential. And so, merging with a company that had a, a much larger mix of businesses, I think in total, as I recall, it was about $40 billion of, of revenue, and as you say, $10 billion of, of of profit, that, that would create a diversity that, you know, in terms of a portfolio diversification would be good. But also strategically, we, we thought it was valuable because it would give AOL a path to broadband and give Time Warner a path to a strong digital future. So, the idea of the merger made sense. Then I, th- I, th- I think it still made sense. The execution of the merger was terrible. And I, I, I often have cited and do in the book a Thomas Edison quote from a century ago, vision. Without execution is hallucination. Yeah, you know, the vision of the merger, uh, you know, made sense. The execution didn't, and it ultimately came down to people and, and, and culture. That different people were thinking about things in different ways. Uh, there was a lot of animosity about you know the internet and, and about AOL. A lot of frustration about it. Uh, a lot, particularly after the market turned and the, and the stock went went uh, went south and people were were mad. And I understand that. Uh, but instead of doing something positive about it, which is to figure out how to capitalize on the assets under the, you know, the, under one roof, you know, there was a lot of, you know, infighting and, and people kind of talking past each other. So, the, to me, the key lesson is, it goes back to, you know, kind of people and culture. And, and I've tried to take some of those lessons and apply them to some of the companies we've invested in at Revolution, particularly as they scale. How do you make sure you get the the p- team culture right? How do you make sure you have the right people on the bus, in the right seats, working together in the right way, all driving, you know, in, the, in towards the same di- direction, which is easy to say, hard to do. Yeah, because
0: uh, how do you get the culture right? Like, do you hire people different from you, sort of like Lincoln's team of rivals, or do you hire people with similar vision to you? Like, what do you... What do you do as you're kind of going from like 10 employees to 1,000 employees? It's a mix. I'd say it's sort of 10 to 50 to 100 to, you know,
2: 250 to, to 1,000 to, you know, it, it, different. there are different steps and you do different things. And it, it, it's tricky because it is a balance, just as you, you sort of say. You, you do need different perspectives. If you're just hiring people like you, you know, that don't really have different different views of things, you know, then you don't have a great team. Uh, at the same time, if you have people that have violently different, you know, opinions and particularly just think about business and think about teamwork or think about you know, strategy in a you know, completely different way, and you can't really figure out a way to kind of bring them together and drive collaboration. That doesn't work either. So it's a tricky balance be, between it. How do you continue to kind of lean in the future, figure out what the company might look like a couple years down the road, and try to get the right team in place before you get to that place, not after you get to that place, uh, but do it with a sensitivity where you really want people that really are passionate about the you know the the idea and and have a shared vision of that idea. Recognize that different skills, different perspectives are important. Important and, and focus more on the team dynamic like how do we win this together I, the other thing that I mentioned in the in the book is a, the lesson I took away from now it's over two decades ago when the. US Olympic team in basketball was was these unbelievable athletes and everybody said you know for sure this dream team they called it was going to end up you know winning the you know the gold medal and they lost relatively early to Lithuania uh, and the reason is while they each had great skills great talents as individual performers they didn't play well as a team they just were used to being kind of the stars on the in, on their own teams and they weren't really focused on on the team dynamic and ultimately got crushed uh, and so to me that uh, it was another Example that you got to get the right skills. You obviously got to get the right perspectives, and I think diversity of perspective is going to become more important in the in the third way. But you got to figure out a way to bring them together as, as one team that has has one mission and is working together in a in a aligned kind of united way, even though they bring different perspectives. Ultimately, when they lock into a plan, they all march ahead to execute that plan.
0: You know, it's interesting because there was a study done recently about company all the companies from the '90s and who survived into the '00s. You know. After the internet crash, and some companies were identified as star culture companies, where they like the dream team, they hired stars, and others were identified as commitment cultures, where the focus was more on not necessarily growth or stars, but uh, how do we make sure we how how do we focus on building a similar commitment, like a family, and to survive. 100% 100% of those companies survived and almost 100% of the star culture companies failed. Right. So it's interesting that the key thing was, you know, how do you build a, a kind of common commitment even if it's a diverse set of values and, and so on? And I think the a good example of the evolution of this is Apple. That Apple was is a is rare
2: company that actually was a leader in the first wave and the second wave and potentially will be again in, in the third wave. And obviously it was founded by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak now 40 years ago. Uh, they were pioneers, and in, in in the early early days of personal computers, kind of lost their way a little bit. You know, Steve Jobs got fired, and 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 that was that was part of it. There's some other issues going on. You know, he was kind of walking in the wilderness for a bunch of years. Kind of, you know, did uh, create another company next, and and acquired Pixar and some other things, and uh, and eventually came back to the company. When he came back to the company, he brought you know kind of a new perspective, of, of not just about the vision of where this was going, but a new appreciation for the dynamics around getting the right teams focused on the. On the on the right products and and I remember when he called me when he went back into Apple must have been now twenty years or so ago uh, and at the time Apple had a two percent market share and most people were giving him up for dead they said Apple was a pioneer in the, in the personal computer era got left behind uh, is is now an irrelevant company and probably will go under uh, but he was able to take not just the 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 apple brand but some of the initial products they had and some of the people they had and figure out a way to focus them partly by doing stopping some things that they were doing on a new set of, of products. And now Apple's one of the most valuable uh, technology companies in the world and has has really had an enormous kind of, you know, resurgence. But part of what he's tried to do, particularly in the last decade, which I think was critically important because obviously he got you know, sick and, and sadly passed away, is how do you create a company that's not so much about Steve Jobs, it's more about Apple. Uh, and that's tricky. Uh, and, you know, the jury's out in terms of where they'll be five or 10 years from now. But I think he did a great job of figuring out a way to institutionalize uh, some of the culture of Apple. Uh, so while of course you know, his his loss was a big loss to Apple, big loss to the world, that Apple is continuing to be an
0: innovative company because it was beyond one person. But wait, you started this uh, anecdote by saying, you remember when he called you. <laughs> so why did Steve Jobs call you?
2: Well, at the time AOL was the dominant internet company, and he wanted a partnership with us. Uh, he wanted us to develop a new version of our Macintosh software for uh, for uh, you know, to be supportive of the Macintosh, which was struggling, as I said, with with this two percent uh, market share. And we ended up actually licensing our AIM technology to them to create a, a, a I think a service thing was called iChat, which we'd never done before. You know, mm-hmm. so as way to be you know try to be supportive of the the rebirth of Apple. We remember having. Uh, you know, lunch with him a year or two later. Uh, be, you know, when he was talking, uh, as probably a year before they launched uh, the iPod and iTunes, and talking about his view of digital music at a time. Uh, we were, um, yeah, you know, but we'd already done the merger with Time Warner and and the Warner Music, and and some of the assets we had there were very important to that. And we talked about working together on on uh, basically having AL do the the what became the iTunes Store, uh, which didn't end up happening. So yeah, you know, we we I was I was I wanted to be as supportive as I could of of the of the uh, of, of Steve's efforts to take this you know, turn the company around. To be honest, I, I I didn't expect him to have the success he did. I, it was much more of a of a turnaround than I than
0: I would have imagined, and it just shows it's possible, uh, but it's hard. You know, so so you've been kind of at the ground floor of all these historical events in in technology over the next twenty years. I think that's you know not only did you call, let's say, the consumer internet in the late eighties that was going to happen over the next decade, but then you sort of at the peak made the right decisions for your shareholders and investors and customers to kind of keep AOL sustainable and alive. And with Revolution, you've done well. Now with this book, the third wave you've outlined, really what you see as the next trillion-dollar opportunities and how people can get involved in it. Uh, It was a great book because it interweaves, again, your personal story, through it, so I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and and talking about it. And you know, are you are you happy now? You've you've been there, done it. You people have trashed you, have have put you on the cover of Time magazine. Been across the whole spectrum. Are things good? No, How's things? Life? Things
2: are actually great. <laughs> I, I I love what I'm doing now. I have the opportunity to work with. With dozens of entrepreneurs at Revolution, I meet thousands of entrepreneurs around the country as these rise to rest efforts, doing a lot of oh, great things. Oh, and things. just
0: to mention, like I have a friend who went to a startup weekend. You organize all these startup right. weekends. He said I learned he learned more in a week than four years of college education. So I do see, again, in terms of education, these types of do-it-yourself events are almost better than four years of reading and being lectured to, you know, so kind of is an interesting thing about education, but but, but, go on. Yeah, just enjoying what I'm doing, including what we're doing on, with the Case
2: Foundation. We really care about things like impact investing, you know, care about, you know, inclusive entrepreneurship. How do you kind of level the playing field so everybody who has an idea has a, as a shot, I have uh, you know, gratified that people take my calls and listen to me in Washington. So I've been able to work together and with Republicans and Democrats on you some legislation. You went to high school with Barack Obama. I did go to high school. Uh, I was a senior when he was a freshman, so we weren't really in classes together. We played basketball a couple times, but I've now lived in Washington for thirty years and you know, with different uh, administrations and different you know kind of you know kind of Republicans or Democrats kind of controlling the House or the, the Senate or the White House. And so I've tried to take a step back and not really focused on or engaged in on politics, just focused on on policy and I, I will continue to you know, to do that. So through revolution, investing in the next generation of, of entrepreneurs, through the Case Foundation, trying to kind of level the playing field so there really opportunity is more broadly distributed and through some of the work on the policy, doing what I can to try to make sure we remain the most innovative entrepreneurial nation. i have having a ball and it's, it's fun to do it and it's fun to actually finally write a book and, and have it out there that takes some of these ideas that I've been developing for the last 30 years, both the things that worked and 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 why they worked and things that failed and why they failed and hopefully that will be helpful uh, and instructive to the, the next generation of entrepreneurs and the next generation of innovators who really want to you know, take the internet to the next level in the, in the third wave.
0: Well, thanks again, Steve. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It's fun. Yeah. For more from James, check out the James Altucher show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting my podcast. I just want to let you know I have a new episode for you every Tuesday. And in fact, I'm thinking of adding more episodes per week. If you subscribe, you'll never miss one. It's really easy and it helps me a lot. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show and click subscribe. Thank you so much. I really hope you do this.